0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first historical group lecture of the autumn. I'm particularly pleased this evening to uh, welcome members of the Blackburn family um, to the lecture, and um, I'm sure you may well have some some, uh, recollections of uh, the Blackburn family to contribute in the discussion that we hope to have later. Professor Robert Blackburn is the Professor of Constitutional Law at King's College London and is also the Director of both the Centre for Political and Constitutional Studies and the Institute of Contemporary British History. He's the author of numerous books on political and constitutional affairs and is also a solicitor and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. His current research activities include leading a major project on the UK Constitution, subject of a parliamentary inquiry, and he's preparing a book on the influence of Magna Carta today. And I'm sure we all know what Magna Carta means. (laughs) Robert is the grandson of his namesake, Robert Blackburn, founder of the Eponymous Aircraft Company. As a Yorkshireman, I've been looking forward very much to this evening, And I now invite Professor Blackburn to deliver his lecture.
1: Good. Well, many thanks for that. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here today uh, and to say something about uh, my my grandfather. And it's a great pleasure also to have other members of the family here, particularly Janie and Sarah, uh, Robert Blackburn's two surviving daughters by his, his second marriage. And uh, I'm hoping at the end there'll be time for some questions, or perhaps not so much questions, but actually contributions uh, from the audience here, because I'm mindful that not only Janie and Sarah will, will, uh, of course, remember Grandad when I was was only three, uh, when Grandad died, but there will be many people here today, uh, distinguished members and fellows of the Royal Aeronautical Society, uh, who have much greater technological uh, knowledge than I about uh, aeronautical uh, engineering. Uh, so I should first begin, perhaps, by declaring the nature of my own interest in the subject, apart from uh, most obviously being uh, the, the grandson of Robert Blackburn and obviously uh, proud and interested uh, in, the, in the family history. Uh, my, my main impressions of uh, Granddad uh, come principally, I suppose, from my father, who, although he never went into the Blackburn business, Uh, He flew all his life. He flew uh, in the Second World War in the fleet air arm. Uh, And when I was little, I was up and down in aeroplanes the whole time. Uh, My my father had uh, tiger moths and and Cessnas. Um, So I I got a lot of my memories and recollections of my grandfather through my father and also through my grandmother, Jessica. Whilst uh, granddad Robert uh, died when he was 70, uh, Jessica lived on to the ripe old age of 101 and was obviously a great receptacle of knowledge, I mean, She was there right at the beginning. They married in 1914 as well. My, my other interest uh, in the subject is an historian uh, as well as a lawyer. Uh, I wear many uh, caps, as may have, uh, you may have heard from uh, the, the um, flattering introduction to me. Um, and among many projects I'm working on, I'm also working upon a, an illustrated book uh, that will examine Blackburn aircraft as a, as a case study uh, I think, of, of social change in the UK uh, in the first half of the 20th century, particularly, and even more particularly, around uh, Yorkshire and Hull. And the book, well, I think, will deal with government and public policy towards the aviation industry, especially in relation to defence, civil passenger transport, and the regulation uh, of aerospace and the industry as a whole. Uh, so particular aspects which I'm already researching and look forward to writing upon, for example would include the earliest forms of uh, aviation regulation, legal regulation of airspace, uh, when the earliest powered airplanes were being flown uh, and tested, uh, at a time, of course, uh, before the Second First World War, uh, of German spy fever and the the Zeppelins that came uh, hovering across uh, into the country. Um, Other aspects I'll be looking at are the defense and foreign policy aspects of my grandfather's work for the Greek government, Uh, during the 1920s, uh, when Blackburns was constructing, uh, really, the first Greek uh, air force uh, just outside Athens at Old Phalaran. And uh, I'll be looking forward to writing on the ideas and actions uh, of uh, particular government ministers, uh, particularly Sir Sir Stafford Cripps, as Minister of Aircraft Production from 1942 to 45 during the Second World War, Uh, a person whom my grandfather loathed uh, together with Cripps' periodic visits to his factory, uh, and frequently referred to as Stifford Craps. <laughs> However, I've, uh, today I've been asked to give a more personal uh, perspective on Robert Blackburn rather than uh, concentrate on the, the more academic aspects of the subject. Uh, and this is uh, going to be aided by a large number of, of images, mostly photographs, uh, from the very large family archive which I have. and. I think it's true to say that to a large extent every picture tells a story. Uh, So today what I I want to concentrate on is first of all outlining what I perceive to be his achievements uh, and why he deserves to be regarded as one of the greats of early modern uh, aviation. And I'll then look at a selection of his uh, aircraft designs ranging from, as I've given the title to the lecture, from the Mercury to the Buccaneer, this fascinating period of aviation history I think in the first half uh, of the 20th century Uh, from the very earliest weird and wonderful flying contraptions right through to the jet age, the Buccaneer being the last uh, aircraft that was commissioned uh, whilst he was alive. Then, subject to time, I'll spend some time looking at his early life, especially the period 1910 to 1914, uh, the period being currently celebrated as the centenary of his pioneering work. This lecture is part of a rolling programme that myself and members of my family, Janie and Sarah, uh, are putting together. that Just about every month over that period, something new was happening. It was a fascinating period. Uh, and so there are lots of pegs, if you like, and episodes to, to celebrate. Uh, just a few uh, weeks ago, I was up at Filey, where, of course, Grandad had his flying school in 1914 to 1912, uh, and they've put several commemorative plaques up there. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to organizing some events in Leeds, which was the original heart of the Blackburn uh, Company. Uh, and there'll be a, there's going to be a permanent exhibition in Roundhay Park where there were a lot of flying exhibitions took place. Uh, and the engineering department of the university and the industrial museum uh, at Leeds are also interested. So uh, maybe I'll see some of you, as well as the family, at some of those other events in the future. Um, I'm hoping that at the end, as I say, uh, some of you will uh, offer some of your own contributions. Uh, it would be fascinating to hear from any of you Uh, if you have any uh, personal or vicarious experience of the Blackburn story, and or to hear uh, from you either by email uh, or telephone call later on. So here are three pictures uh, of the great man, and I think it's interesting to look at them, because one feature, I think, of Robert Blackburn is that he's not actually as widely known about as his contemporaries, the other greats, uh, whether it's uh, A.V. Rowe or Tommy Sopwith uh, or Handley Page. Um, and he, he wasn't a great publicist, and there aren't, in fact, very many photographs of him in common circulation. But here, here he is. Um, so I think the, the distinctions, to summarise, before I go on to look at some of his aeroplanes, uh, and to remind those of you who know perhaps uh, less than others about uh, my grandfather... Uh, He was the first Yorkshireman to design and fly an aeroplane, that was on the 20th of May 1910, uh, on the East Yorkshire coast. Uh, And according to my calculations, but others here might correct me, um, he was the first UK national in the country to do so, uh, after Elliot Rowe. Others, of course, flew in the country, uh, but they were either not UK nationals, or they were uh, French-designed aeroplanes. And generally, in the earliest parts of powered flights, uh, he exhibited and flew aeroplanes at most of the pre-1914 air national or regional air shows and operated uh, famous flying schools at Filey between 1911 and 12, and subsequently at Hendon and then at Brough from 1916. He was the first to accomplish many feats. Uh, so in 1911, there was the first aeroplane uh, to fly up the Yorkshire coast from Filey to Scarborough uh, watched by vast crowds uh, at the time. In uh, 1911 also, from Filey, where the, the flying school was, as I've said, there was the first night flight in, in Yorkshire took place. In 1911 also, uh, the first woman passenger was taken up uh, in the Blackburn plane uh, in Yorkshire, Miss Cook. And in 1912, as the design started to develop, uh, there was the first all-metal monoplane, very distinctive uh, at the time, In 1913, the first aircraft delivery of the Yorkshire Evening Post uh, from Leeds to York was made by a Blackburn monoplane. Uh, In 1914, the first monoplane, a Blackburn plane, was supplied to the fleet. That was the Type 1 monoplane. Uh, And in 1919, a little later, uh, he uh, pioneered the first side-by-side two-seater. All two-seaters until then were in the front and behind. Uh, But Grandad was a firm believer that the future of flight was more sociable where you were sitting next to one another and you could talk uh, more clearly to uh, one another. Uh, In 1924, I'm just selecting some uh, distinctive aspects, Um, he developed the Swift, which was capable of carrying a a very large torpedo. And in 1923, there was the Kubaru, which was the largest aeroplane in the world in its day. And in fact, he pioneered other colossal air machines. And for some of you, you may... You know him best for these. The, the colossal uh, Blackburn Beverly, of course, a transport carrier for the armed forces as well as uh, in, for civil aviation. Uh, and also the vast uh, seaplanes, the Iris, uh, which I'll be showing you in a little bit as well. He was also a pioneer uh, of new civil airline routes. In 1914, uh, he could claim to be the first, uh, to have conducted the first regular air service in the UK. Uh, which ran from Leeds to Bradford every half hour. Uh, in 1919, there was the first scheduled flight from Leeds to London, currently being celebrated at an exhibition at Leeds Bradford Airport. And at the same time, he was developing civil aviation lines over to Amsterdam, uh, where he opened more uh, regular flights. And later on, he opened up uh, the first African air route, uh, Cobham-Blackburn Airlines, um, in uh, collaboration with uh, Alan Cobham. He also, uh, did some pioneering work abroad, uh, with the, uh, permission from the defense and foreign offices, uh, for the Greek naval aircraft, uh, in Old and outside, uh, Athens. So in the 1920s, uh, hundreds of Blackburn workers went out there, uh, and developed the, and developed, worked the factory out there and produ- produced particularly the Velos, uh, plane for, for the Greek and produced the first Greek air force, uh, for them. Uh, and in the process, he trained uh, hundreds of local people in aeronautical engineer. He was also part of some of the spectacular air races that took place in the early years. And two, which were uh, particularly uh, pleasing to my grandfather, was 1913. Uh, there was a newspaper-sponsored air race that took place uh, where Blackburn's took on Avro's, uh, and it was called the Wars of the Roses, the Yorkshire people against the Lancastrians, and Blackburns won. Uh, in 1931, of course, Blackburns was regularly in the uh, King's Cup, and it, was, uh, it won in the year 1931 in the Blackburn Bluebird, which was a very popular plane uh, at the time. And the Blackburn Company at Leeds, uh, and therefore granddad and, and his, his family, my grandmother, was at the centre of major aviation events uh, in those early years. So, for example, when they... Uh, the, the pioneering U.S. round-the-world flyers in 1924 uh, stopped off in the U.K. It was Bruff that they stopped at uh, and stayed two weeks as well, so seeing uh, the Blackburn family um, every day. There were several royal visits uh, to, the, to the Blackburn factory, particularly by Prince George in 1929 and 1940, and Winston Churchill himself took a close interest in Blackburn aircraft, actually sponsoring uh, the kangaroo, Blackburn kangaroo aircraft, Uh, in one of its earliest uh, national air races. And Blackburn formed partnerships with many famous pilots of the day. Uh, B.C. Hucks, particularly well-known, one of the early pioneering uh, test pilots, the first person in the country to loop the loop. Uh, Amy Johnson learned to fly at the Blackburn Flying School. Uh, Alan Cobham, uh, the Honourable Mrs. Victor Bruce, and other famous lady flyers, uh, etc. Those early days must have been terrific fun, uh, as well uh, as very exciting in terms of the technological uh, development. Uh, Blackburns and Granddad, of course, major, made, a, made a major contribution to the World War II effort uh, through their aircraft. I suppose two which deserve particular mention are, are the Skewer, uh, which I'll show in, in, a, in a while, uh, a, specifically de- developed as a, a dive bomber, uh, and the Swordfish. Uh, now, of course, all that was designed by Richard Fairey, uh, most of them were actually manufactured by Blackburn, so many of them came to be known uh, as the Blackfish. So it really deserve uh, some, some Blackburn credit there, as well as, as fairies. And then, of course, uh, for some, perhaps the best-known aircraft, right at the end, the Buccaneer, which became the standard uh, naval air- aircraft for several decades. So in social terms, uh, Robert Blackburn and Blackburn aircraft permeated Yorkshire life, Uh, For five decades, there were air exhibitions, thousands of workers uh, were at the Olympia Works in Leeds and and at Brough, uh, and almost daily press reports uh, of what was uh, going on. He was recognized with an OBE and the equivalent of a knighthood by the Greek government, their highest medal, uh, the Gold Cross Order of the Redeemer, as a ceremony in Athens on the 10th of March 1927, uh, attended by uh, my grandmother as well and some members of the family, But curiously, uh, he was overlooked for a knighthood by the British government when all the other major aviation pioneers uh, received one. Elliot Rowe was knighted in 1928, uh, Frederick Hanley Page in 1942, and Tommy Sopwith in 1953. It is, uh, I'd suggest, a a curious omission. Uh, Some at Brough believe it's the north of Watford factor. So I now move to look at some of the aeroplanes. And this was the first monoplane uh, worked on in... Uh, 1909, uh, and which flew, I think one would have to say partially successfully, as was A.V. Rowe's earliest attempts as well, uh, in a series really of of long hops. Uh, It was built in a a small workshop in Leeds uh, with a 35 horsepower green engine, and the pilot, uh, Robert Blackburn himself, was positioned below the wings and engine, sitting on a wicker chair taken from his father's garden. Uh, It successfully flew as I say, in a series of long hops on the 20th of May 1910 at Saltburn on the East Yorkshire coast, uh, but then sideslipped on attempting a turn uh, and crashed. Even if this design was abandoned subsequently by Grandad, it did establish his name uh, in uh, the aviation world as a serious and leading uh, aeronautical engineer, and the design was favorably reported on uh, by Flight magazine. Then there was uh, his second design. There was uh, a cluster, I think one would say, of designs roughly around this shape. Uh, and the monoplane uh, was quite distinctive because the Avro, for example, had tri- was triplanes, uh, three wings or two, two wings. So going with a monoplane, um, putting his eggs in that basket, was a very distinctive uh, contribution of Blackburn's at that time. It did owe something, of course, to the French Antoinette aeroplane, uh, which had been developed in France, uh, but did have um, substantial modifications made to it uh, in the uh, features relating to it, in the hull, uh, the style of wings, and the tailgate. Uh, this design was tested uh, at the flying school in, in Filey. Uh, it had its first successful launch on the 8th of March 1911, flown by B.C. Huck's. Now, these, as I say, they, um, this design, uh, there are several of them. Not many was made of each particular one, but there's the, the second monoplane, which became the Mercury, and there, were, there was the Mercury 1, 2, 3. Uh, and then there was the Type E, developed in 1911, which was the military uh, all-metal aeroplane. They were all fairly similar, and I'll show you here just a few of them. On Filey Beach... A wonderful photograph. There's Granddad with uh, one of the Mercurys. There is the Type E, the military all-metal design, and a, a two-seater version. And um, the single-seat monoplane. Uh, now, this is uh, worth dwelling on for a little while. Uh, only one of these was built, and it was a variant of the Mercury, but a one-seater, uh, whereas most of the Mercurys were two-seaters. Um, and it was built to the order of Cyril E. Foggin. It was tested by another of Blackburn's test pilots, Harold Blackburn, no relation, um, in late 1912, and then it was flown during the week of the 21st of March, 1913, uh, by Mr. Foggin himself, um, during uh, a week of demonstrations at Lofthouse Park, Leeds. Now, remarkably, it survives today at Shuttleworth, and is the oldest original aeroplane Uh, certainly in the UK, if not in the world, still in existence capable of flying. So for those of you who've been to Shuttleworth, a a fantastic museum uh, and collection of old aircraft, Um, they have reconstructed some of the old Avro planes and and one or two others, Uh, but those are reconstructions. Uh, Quite a lot of them were actually made for the film Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines. Uh, But the Blackburn monoplane is an original. Uh, And if anyone knows of any other earlier... Uh, aeroplane in the world that still flies, please let me know, because I think another um, interesting aspect is that it it is still the oldest flying aircraft in the world. This was the 1912 monoplane flying just a few weeks ago at Shuttleworth. I was lucky enough to sit inside, which you probably just saw a picture of me in, and it had just three controls in it, a throttle, an on-off switch, and the steering wheel. Uh, the pilots uh, who actually took it up uh, commented on it that it, it's remarkably stable to take up, but it'll only fly if conditions are absolutely perfect. And this was its inaugural flight uh, in 1929. Uh, and here's the white falcon moving on. Uh, there was only one of these made. It was custom-made for Roland Ding, uh, who is uh, another of Grandad's uh, test pilots, uh, a very famous um, character at the time uh, in Yorkshire and it was made for, for Ding personally uh, who had his own flying and joy lighting business uh, as well himself, mainly at Windermere uh, I'll say more about Roland Ding later. It was a two-seater similar in z- design to the type 1 two-seater version of the uh, single seat monoplane then as the design moved on uh, from the monoplane, there was the type LC plane and the TB C plane, the BE2 Uh, A Farnborough design, but it was made by Blackburns and other companies for the government. Uh, Robert Blackburn received uh, his first order uh, for these personally from Winston Churchill of the Admiralty uh, the day after his wedding in 1914. And then one of my favorite Blackburn aircraft, uh, the Kangaroo. Uh, This was designed as a a reconnaissance torpedo type uh, aircraft. It had a wooden frame and covered in fabric uh, and was manufactured at the Olympia Works in Leeds. Uh, its maximum speed was 114 miles an hour. It was uh, used initially for military uh, purposes in the First World War, carrying bombs and reconnaissance, uh, but later it was used for commercial purposes uh, and was, uh, ran the commercial line to Amsterdam. Then there's the Uh, uh This was made to Air Ministry specifications uh, to serve as a long-distance coastal defence aeroplane uh, capable of carrying a large torpedo load. Uh, It was the largest single-engine aircraft in the world in its day, capable of carrying a a uh, one-and-a-half-tonne torpedo. And then there was the Velos, uh, most of which were made for the Greek government. It was a a torpedo biplane with dual control or capacity for one pilot to serve as a gunner. And then uh, the popular Bluebird, In 1928, this was a popular user-friendly biplane for private owners uh, developed for club training uh, and flying. Uh, It won uh, several competitions in its early years. In its inaugural year, 1926, the Yorkshire Aeroplane Club's 25-mile open handicap uh, and various other competitions such as the Grosvenor Challenge Cup uh, later on in September. There is a float version of it as well. The Lingcock, that was entered in the 1928 uh, two-day King's Cup air race. And then there are the enormous seaplanes, uh, which I showed in the uh, movie Pathé Clip just there. There's the Iris in 1929, um, a huge aircraft. It was a a biplane with an all-metal hull and uh, and powered by three powerful 650-horsepower Rolls-Royce engines uh, fitted between two main wings and the Perth. Then, entering slightly more modern uh, periods, uh, there's, there is the B2. Uh, the B2, uh, there's a B2, in fact, still in existence and flying, a beautiful uh, two-seater side-by-side. Side. Um, Amy and I sat in it uh, at the Shuttleworth collection just a few weeks ago, um, And it had its maiden flight at Brough in 1931. Uh, It was a a durable uh, training aircraft built principally for the RAF and for the reserve uh, training. And then the shark. Uh, This was put in for tender uh, against the swordfish, uh, and the swordfish won the tender, and most of those were actually uh, constructed and used. Uh, But uh, a fair number of the shark... Uh, planes were actually used uh, by the fleet air arm. Then the Skewer, 192 of these uh, were built. Uh, It was the only British airplane of its day designed exclusively as a dive bomber fighter. Um, It had folding wings and served on various aircraft carriers, including Ark Royal. It was the first British aircraft in the Second World War to have a strike against a German one. Uh, On the 26th of September 1939, it shot down the German Dornier Uh, flying boat that was shadowing a damaged British submarine. And then, of course, the swordfish, or blackfish, as I've referred to it. Uh, This famous aircraft, uh, as I've said, was designed by fairies, uh, but deserves to be mentioned in any list of Blackburn planes because so many of them were constructed, 1,700 in total, uh, more than twice as many as fairies themselves. Then, moving on to a plane I mentioned earlier, the colossal uh, Blackburn-Beverley, uh, proved very popular for military purposes. Uh, a typical load, uh, believe it or not, was nine Jeeps, uh, 81 troops, and to 38 paratroops, one angle dozer, fuel, fully fuelled, uh, one large anti-aircraft gun, three army vehicles, and one bulldozer, plus accessories. So a vast load. Um, and then... Of course, the Buccaneer. Uh, in 1952, the Admiralty decided it wanted a high-speed, low-level bomber strike aircraft operating below the radar uh, using uh, the new missile technology, uh, whereas previously virtually all bombers were relatively slow aircraft uh, operating from high altitude. Uh, originally called the NA-39, um, it uh, became the Buccaneer. And there on the Ark Royal. And there at Farnborough. And an old model of it, a redundant model of it, was kept uh, on the forecourt at Yeovilton uh, for a long time. Uh, I think it's back inside now. Uh, but there's my son uh, standing just below it. And there's a cluster of family members, including uh, Janie, Sarah, and myself. Uh, not Sarah Willis on that occasion. Um, up at Brough. So just a little bit about the history of the Blackburn Company before I go on to uh, the early flight. Um, for those who don't know, so to begin with, of course, it was a private business uh, and Robert Blackburn worked out of workshops uh, provided largely by his father, George, uh, at Benson Street and then uh, Bomb Road. Um, and then um, the Blackburn Flying School uh, was established uh, at uh, Filey. The works or manufacturer took place uh, in the Olympia works in Leeds. Uh, and, in, and then in parts, it was wheeled, taken by horse and carriage uh, over, to the, over to the east coast for test piloting them. The, in the early days, uh, although it had been much easier to have tested them at Roundhay Park, Uh, the local council uh, was worried about the safety of these early flying machines and so wouldn't grant permission. Uh, Later on, when times became more pressing during the First World War, uh, Rante Park, right in the heart of Leeds as a a city, uh, was used for test piloting uh, airplanes at that time. Um, So in in 1914, when the the company was really set up, the Olympia Works was was acquired. Uh, It was incorporated as the Blackburn Aeroplane and Motor Company. And in 1916, uh, the Brough site uh, near, near Hull uh, on the Humber was acquired specifically to test seaplanes at the time, uh, because Grandad obviously specialised in naval aircraft or aircraft for the Navy. Uh, the Leeds remained the main headquarters, uh, though through uh, to, um, into the 1920s. So there's a a reincorporation in 1936, uh, as you can see, uh, a new factory at Dumbarton, and in 1939, a new factory at Sherburn and Elmett, which specialised in manufacturing the swordfish. And then um, in 1949, as orders began to dry up in 1949, um, it merged uh, with General Aircraft. And then after... um, Uh, Granddad died um, in 1955. Later on, the company was taken over by Hawker Sidleys and then subsequently uh, taken over by British Aerospace, uh, now BAE Systems. So it it is amazing. The the Brough site, uh, founded in 1916 uh, by Grandad, is still there and very much operational. And over the years, there have been vicissitudes, all sorts of problems, industrial disputes, uh, drying up of orders and redundancies, but somehow BRUF has always managed to survive. And within BAE Systems, I think it's true to say that it's never known as BAE Systems, uh, the one outside Hull. It's always known as BRUF. BRUF is an institution in its own right. Uh, And it's rather lovely that uh, uh, BAE Systems has um, always enjoyed and celebrated its ancestry in Blackburn Aircraft. And if you go up there, there's a Robert Blackburn Road, and there's a very active heritage centre there as well, compensating, I think, for when Hawkers took it over over, because Blackburn's was a well-known brand. Uh, They tried to bury the Blackburn brand and promote Hawkers, uh, but it's been brought back um, in latter years. Now, uh, in the time available, I'll say a little bit about uh, Robert Blackburn's early life uh, and how he got involved in the the aeroplane business. And uh, He was born in Kirkstall, Leeds, on the 26th of March, 1885. Uh, the son of George Blackburn, his wife Kate, uh, who lived at 18 Spencer Place, Round A Road, uh, Leeds. Uh, and uh, here are his parents, uh, then of course. He was the second of seven children, uh, with an elder sister, Dorothy, then after him Hilda, Spencer, Marjorie, Norman, and Charles. His family uh, were very important to him, um, and he included them in the family to as much of an extent as, as he could. His brothers, Spencer, um, Charles and Norman, um, all joined with him in the early days, uh, but then Spencer, who later on died early of uh, TB in the 1920s, uh, and during the First World War, uh, decided to go his own way and set up his own uh, motor, motor car company in Leeds itself. But Norman and Charles uh, remained with the business. Uh, there was a, quite a big age difference. Uh, Norman was about ten years younger. Uh, Than Robert, and uh, Charles, of course, even even more so. Charles was the baby of, of the family. Uh, but they became important figures in the family, in the, in the management of, of the business. Uh, Norman himself uh, could fly. He ran the flying school, uh, t- t- training other pilots. Uh, and he, he ran some of the factories, notably the Sherburn uh, factory of the swordfish uh, during the uh, Second World War. Uh, Charles Blackburn. Uh, were handled the insurance and public relations uh, side of the business, and there were other relatives in the business as well. Uh, notably, Bobby Rhodes, uh, who was the um, who was relate on Jess's side, his, his first wife's side, uh, the, uh, the nephew of one of Granny's uh, sisters. Now, his his father uh, was a heavy engineer. He was a works director at uh, at Green's in Leeds. And he was brought up then in the idea of manufacturing these machines like that uh, or uh, heavy roller machines. And uh, Thomas Green's was uh, a well-established heavy engineering company. The first uh, picture I have of granddad is here taken, I think, about uh, 1890, Uh, and if I'm correct, that, I think, is granddad up there with two of his sisters uh, and his mother and father down here. And he went uh, first to Leeds Modern School uh, between 1898 uh, and 1903, Uh, and then subsequently he went to study civil engineering at Leeds University, which it became, Leeds, Leeds College at the time, uh, between 1903 and 1906. And I think uh, one of the, uh, of the two, I think, most influential factors upon him, the other one I'll say something about in, the, in, in a moment, being over in France when it was all happening, uh, 1907, 1908, in terms of, uh, of, of great flight. But he was fortunate to have been taught there by Professor John Goodman, uh, the Professor of Civil and Mechanical Engineering and Head of Department. Uh, Goodman uh, had not only written a, a leading work on mechanical engineering, mechanics applied to engineering, in 1906, and the leading text on the subject at the time, uh, but t- two features of his teaching uh, stand out, and that particular particularly of interest to me, being a university teacher myself. The, f- the first was open book examinations, uh, quite modern, the idea of being able to take in whatever materials you actually like. Uh, but for him, uh, the emphasis was very much on applying the knowledge you have rather than rote learning and how good your memory uh, was. So allowing students to concentrate on ideas and the application of knowledge rather than regurgitating facts. And secondly, quite unusual at the time, uh, instead of teaching with toy apparatus uh, to prove mechanical theories, students conducted their uh, practical laboratory exercises and experiments uh, on full-size machines. Uh, And certainly that continues today. I was in the mechanical engineering at Leeds, uh, only a few weeks ago, when the students there are working on life-size uh, machines still. Now, in the, in the year that Robert left the university, he was made an associate member of the Institute uh, of Civil Engineers, uh, which was a distinction, and this would almost certainly have been on a glowing reference from Professor Goodman. I think the creative approach of Professor Goodman towards his teaching, uh, the practical application of it, uh, and, and how principles could be forged towards new inventions rather than continuing or improving existing knowledge and technology uh, largely explains perhaps uh, Robert Blackburn's uh, restlessness about just going into the family firm but actually wanting to forge out, and strike out and invent something new altogether. Uh, after he, he graduated, he worked for a while at Greens uh, but found it difficult to knuckle down and follow in his father's footsteps. Uh, so his father, who was always... Uh, highly supportive of his son, uh, even though he was unhappy with his decisions from time to time, fixed him up with some work experience abroad uh, with commercial contacts he had in Germany, Belgium, and France. And then Robert's presence in France, working at a civil engineering consultancy firm in Rouen, in particular in 1908, proved a turning point in his life. Because 1908, of course, was a, a key period in the development of European aviation, in 30, on the 13th of January, 1908, there was the first powered flight in Europe by Henri Farman, uh, English-born but a French national, flying a circular course for half a mile uh, in a biplane. And then on the 8th of August, 1908, Wilbur Wright started a series of demonstration flights at Le Mans in his Wright's flyer, traveling in controlled circular flights of approximately 1 minute 45 seconds. And as my grandfather recounted later on, in a speech, and <clears throat> a speech he made. Our office hours were six days a week until five uh, Saturday afternoon. For several Sundays, I would race up to Paris to witness demonstrations by the Wright brothers, Farman, Blériot, and, Blath- and Latham, on his graceful Antoinette. Once or twice, I failed to turn up for duty at the office on Monday morning. On my last visit from Rouen, I felt so ashamed when I arrived back for work late on the Tuesday, and feeling that I'd be reprimanded and perhaps given the sack that I approached my employer first and told him of my Paris exploits, the state of restlessness that had come over me, and that it were better that I should leave. I'd witnessed with and fascinated by these earlier flights of a few minutes, studied with a student's curiosity, uh, the various stress structures, uh, etc. And he wanted to embark on formulating his own conception of the design on paper. So he left, and for several months he lived in a top-floor room in Paris, uh, setting about his own design for, a, for an aeroplane. And during this period there was the, the first, one of the first exhibitions in Paris, uh, and his parents came over to see him to find out what, what the hell was going on, uh, and he managed to persuade them to go along to these, this exhibition, and George felt mm, maybe there's something in this. So when uh, Robert came back to Leeds, his father uh, found a, a workshop for him, and seconded a couple of workmen uh, from uh, the Greens Engineering Company, and Robert set to work. So when he did set to work, what type of design would he go for? As we know, he went for the the, uh, monoplane design. But the type of contraptions that he was comparing himself with at that time looked like that, or that. That's the right flyer. And a French design, believe it or not, uh, was thought at some point to be the way of the future. And I think uh, that particular design may have, to some extent, influenced uh, his first design, which I've already shown you. That machine attracted uh, a lot of attention in the local press, There's a, from, a, from a cutting at the time. So the first flight uh, took place at, at Saltburn. Um, the, in parts, it was taken up to the uh, East Yorkshire coast. And um, it was assembled there, and Granddad himself flew the machine, and the romantic side of it uh, commemorated in a, a picture which went out as a Blackburn calendar at the time. The original drawing, which Janie has in her sitting room. But, um, as I've said, it, um, it, it, um, he decided to go ahead with a different design for his second uh, machine. In times of commercial austerity, as it were, particularly after the two world wars, uh, when government contracts dried up. Uh, Blackburn's had to diversify, uh, and I think it's worth dwelling on that Robert Blackburn was uh, an aircraft designer first and foremost, but he could turn his hand to other ideas and other contraptions when he wanted to. Uh, and um, just a few of these, while uh, it really came to naught, uh, he was interested in the idea of motor-powered uh, boats, and in fact, won the Mary Gordon... Uh, I think is still, in fact, on, round, on the park, at Roundtay Park, on the, the lake there. Uh, his, he was also uh, made uh, motor-powered sleighs for Ernest Shackleton uh, for his expeditions to the South Pole. And he was a great lover of cars. He had some wonderful cars himself, reputed to be the first person in Leeds to own and drive a, a car, motor vehicle. Uh, but these are a few of the, the machines that he produced. And two of his own cars, I think that's an Elvis. I'm not so sure about that, I think that might be a Rolls. And then, uh, forgive me those of you who've seen me give a presentation before, uh, my own favourite, the Roma hut. Now the idea of a Roma hut uh, was that when you were going out for the day, uh, you could put together um, a little house in a cabin that you pulled along behind you. So here you are, the family going out for an outing on the day, Driving down the road, stopping off where you want to have your picnic and starting to disassemble everything, laying it out neatly on the garden floor, putting it up, and then enjoy. <laughs> and these Roma huts, believe it or not, were very successful at the time. Now, obviously, there's a certain novelty value to them. Uh, And, of course, he he was also making prefabricated houses, too, uh, up in uh, the north of England, up in Scotland uh, as well. And then, uh, when you've had enough of your day out, you put it back again in its box and drove back home. I've mentioned just flitting from one little subject to the next for reasons of time. Um, Here's a cartoon from the early days, Uh, you know, what will we make of it all? And here's the idea of a cartoonist that uh, an aeroplane, a monoplane could be used uh, for, being, uh, for ordering, for gardening works, watering the garden. So very briefly to end up with, uh, and I've said something about what I think Grandad's uh, achievements were, which were remarkable, uh, I think. And he, he deserves to be regarded as one of the greats of British aviation, uh, and uh, he deserves... Uh, more than deserves the celebrations we're having in this centenary programme, which are, are ongoing. Just to very quickly flip through, again, a short number of the aeroplane contraptions that he built. Good. Well, thank you very much for, for listening.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Robert, I can't help feeling that if only he'd taken out a patent for water bombing forest fires, yes. yeah, he'd have been made for life. So we move into a discussion and question period. If you have a question or you'd like to add to the discussion, please indicate and one of my colleagues will bring a microphone to you.
2: Um, on the first uh, of January forty nine, um, Blackburn and General Aircraft merged, and um, I've always been interested in this period. First of all, uh, do any of the General Aircraft archives still exist within whether it's Hawker Siddeley or BAE or whoever has all the old documents now?
1: Um, it's a good point. I haven't come across any uh, the. Archival material uh, that I have come across is quite patchy. There's quite a lot, particularly on the early days, still at Brath. Um, of that particular period, I haven't seen much much documentation. Um, does, does anyone else can, know, I? can answer that? Yeah. Okay. Then the other, I don't, the other,
0: sorry, I don't know about the General Aircraft minutes, but at the RAF Museum we have some Blackburn minutes, for, uh, certainly going back to the the North Sea aerial transport company, which is the airline um, I think the Blackburn aircraft company minutes go back that sort of quite a way back and reasonably far up to date but i don't know about general aircraft
2: oh, thank you and then the the other thing is that um, in in forty nine almost the first project which the joint organisation put forward was—I didn't realise this—was a transonic, um, sapphire-powered swing-wing um, design, which was went through from forty-nine to fifty-one. It was, it was passed to RAE and backwards and forwards with the Ministry. But I've never seen any drawings of this. No, there again, that's just a, a question. And then the third thing is um, Norbert Edward Rowe. He was known as Nero. He um, was the director of technical development with the Ministry of Aircraft Production. And then after the Mars M52 was cancelled, he left the civil service, went to BA for five years, and then went to Blackburn as the technical director. And he worked his way up, and I think he became almost like the commercial director. He was involved with the buccaneer and so on. And again, I wonder whether you might know where perhaps his papers might be.
1: Can I just answer that uh, last gentleman's query? Um, I've been in touch with Paul Lawson, who runs the archives at Bruff, and I have been up there. And in fact, I was uh, having
3: an email conversation with him today, and he uh, confirmed that they're still only part way through cataloguing what they have. And uh, it won't come as a surprise to you that they're very under-resourced there. Uh, BAE don't give them much money. It's all run on volunteer help. So
1: there might well be the general aircraft archives there, and they just haven't got round to cataloguing them yet. Uh, The the Heritage Centre there has done a fantastic job, though, over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, Eric Barker, particularly, uh, kicking it going, because before that, they were in a terrible state. So they are are getting there. So there may be some help as they get round to that period. Could I um, ask Jane and Sarah if they'd like to make any uh, comments or offer any perspectives on Grandad?
4: it's amazing I, I, i'm s- thrilled that you 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 did all the, the talking today because um there's so much that i didn't know um so and i don't think i can possibly add anything about the flying days of grandpa because you i think your your knowledge and your research is far and away beyond the knowledge that we have um and i was 17 when dad died and I wish I'd had more time to talk to him, but I learnt more about him in the years, in the in the recent years, through you and through um, the centenaries than I ever knew um, about him when, when he was alive, apart from he was my dad and we loved him very much. Um, so technically, I don't think I can add anything, Robert, um, and I think you've done the most brilliant job in all the research and the fabulous photographs and bringing it all alive for all of us
1: it'll all come together in the book eventually hopefully two thousand 2014 we'll have a big book
4: launch. it's going to be a very big book i would love to know if there's any um record i think you were talking about um the social history of this um period. I would love to know if there's any record of the reactions of local people in 1912 in and 13 to uh, the sight of aeroplanes flying around Filey.
1: Well, it's a good point and it's, it's something I want to try and go into in, in more depth myself. It's uh, not so difficult looking at a, a first obvious place to look at is just the local press and when you do look at the local press you know the Yorkshire Evening Post, the Yorkshire Post and, the lo- and even more local ones like the Filey Mercury or, or whatever it's called, and up in Scarborough, uh, there are references to uh, a- aviation developments really every week, if not you know, every other day. Uh, so it certainly s- struck the popular imagination. And in, in a, a period where there wasn't television uh, and even radio um, in those early days, I mean, it, was, it was a day's outing. It was, it was a, a, a form of entertainment. Now, I suppose it was the First World War that made uh, aviation serious, in a sense. Uh, and I think one needs to remember also uh, that by no means was it clear that aeroplanes would be the future of civil uh, transport, but particularly human transport. I'd, I'd have thought probably right into you know, the 1930s, because the, 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 the large people carriers in the air were really the airships. And it was only after a succession of Zeppelin and R-101 disasters that aeroplanes came in th- into their own. Um, Otherwise, th- there is a little bit of oral history uh, around what uh, people thought. And uh, in various sort of bits and people, pieces, I've managed to put together from letters from people, recollections from what their parents said to them as well, uh, letters from the, from the early days, um, that, people who worked in the factory, and as I say, there were hundreds of them. Um, there is a, a fair amount of material there that can be uh, put into shape to, to, to reflect a popular attitudes to what was going on. Almost generally, I'd say it was regarded as a very benevolent, uh, popular uh, activity. So it was regarded as a sort of thrilling, uh, positive thing. Uh,
3: you, you showed a picture of uh, a buccaneer pre- preserved somewhere, and I can't uh, remember where it was, but I wondered, were you aware of the one that's uh, preserved in the Connecticut headquarters at Farnborough?
1: Yes, although I haven't been down there to see it. I go to Farnborough ra- remarkably rarely, I regret to say but I do need to, when I get down to finishing off my writing on this, need to spend a considerable amount of time down there. Uh, there are a, a lot of uh, museums and archives around the country, in, in fact, to explore. You could spend your whole life uh, doing it, in fact. Um, and, of course, there's you know, Yeovilton. There's a, a rich amount of Blackburn material around there. The National Science, the, the Science Museum in South Kensington uh, has, has a fair amount of material, too.
5: Question at the back. In the middle 50s when we were still a real country um, several aircraft UK aircraft manufacturers were tasked with producing designs or schemes for uh, I suppose you would call it a space shuttle for the RAF for their man program which was cancelled in June July 1960 um, I assume I'm guessing that Blackburn must have been one of the companies which were invited to tender or Provider scheme? Are you aware of any such scheme by Blackburn?
1: No. Sounds interesting, though. I'll try and do some digging.
6: Uh, I'd like to pick up um, one or two of the remarks that have just been recently been made. Um, you can actually see see and hear uh, buccaneers rolling along the the, the, the concrete um, at at Bruntingthorpe, I think it is. Uh, where they have about five that they can power up and 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 trundle around. They're not supposed to get airborne, um, but uh, that that's 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 a sight to be seen. Um, to come back to earlier days, the <coughs> in terms of um, planes versus airships, uh, in 1924, with the new government that came in, they said uh, airships will replace uh, aeroplanes as the means of transport, and. Um <coughs> And that's, was the gestation of the R100 and the R101. But as you say, the disaster of R101 in in, 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 in 1930, really, uh, did I say 1934 just now? I meant, I, I, supposed to have said 1924, whatever I said. Um, but in 1930, of course, the crash of, of R101, uh, brought that, that to an end. Um, but another point, uh, and a further point about the early, the, the very earliest of days of flying and you you've really alluded to this too that uh and and it was it was true for so many pilots in in the first world war that they had had no opportunity to operate anything mechanical uh and, and because cars were very rare uh hardly anybody would have a car uh and then pilots were getting airborne uh and 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 having to teach themselves to fly so it was a a very um you know, a very in innovative period and, and um, a very challenging uh, very challenging time for the pilots to learn not only about, you know, learn about controlling a beast in three dimensions.
7: Um, a recollection and a question. Um, recollection is um, in the mid-50s, I think probably 1954, as a schoolboy, I was invited up to Brough for a week during the summer holidays, as guest of the company, just to look around and see what they did. And looking back on, they gave us an absolutely wonderful time. We didn't actually get to fly in the prototype um, General Freighter um, because it went unserviceable when they were going to take us up. But um, looking back on this, I get the impression of a company that was very concerned to attract people into it, particularly technical people, and very willing to invest in that. And I wonder if you or other people have that same impression. The question is, um, at what stage in after 1910 did um, Robert Blackburn's enterprise become financially viable in that it was being new aeroplanes being paid for by clients rather than um, with family money, which I think is what got it going initially.
1: Thanks. Um, Well, to answer your second question first, uh, I'm not entirely sure without trawling through the books and accounts, and I'm not, well, I I think you can trawl through them to a a limited extent, but they're fairly patchy, but the earliest ones are difficult. Uh, certainly he was subsidized, as it were, right from the outset, uh, with money that came from my grandmother in 1914 and help from his, from his father. Um, so that set the business up. But the, the early planes, quite a few of them, were, speci- were specifically made to order, like Cyril Foggin's uh, aeroplane, uh, etc. Uh, it, uh, it was with the outbreak of the war and the first order of, uh, I think, 14 BE-2s, uh, from the government that started making it financially viable, I suppose the, the First World War. So then there was a crisis afterwards um, and, and a lot of um, as I said some of the uh, like the, the flights to Amsterdam which were partially successful trying to open up new routes uh, getting the Greek contract I think was quite important in the 1920s. I mean that was highly highly lucrative and that helped the company in, in a big way. Um, and then it was really, I think, through imagination. The Bluebird, you know, I think Grandad, realising that people want to sit next to one another, that, that you need to you design a plane specifically for joyriding rather than giving them uh, just a plane that might be adapted from a military-purpose aeroplane. I think it was uh, living on their wits that actually made them made them survive. But I've no doubt uh, that uh, my grandfather always felt that it was a financially risky business uh, right, right to the end. Um. The, on your first point, and this relates back to, to what the lady said earlier on and social attitudes to it, it strikes me quite strongly from looking at uh, all the archives uh, and materials that insofar as a company, a, a large company, uh, can ever be a happy family, um, it there are certainly it was a very paternalistic form of company that there really was a sense of obligation to the workforce to look after them. Uh, shown in all sorts of little ways. So, I mean, just granddad bringing the family in, as it were, to the business to start with. But there were very active social clubs, very active social clubs, sporting activities of all for, for the women as well as the men. Um, and, uh, and he was a strong believer in apprenticeships. Uh, and that still, I think, remains very strong in, br- in Brough today, actually, as a tradition. Uh, so all, all these things, I, I think... Um, it was very much part of the local area, and there was um, a feeling of, of um, sense of obligation, uh, loyalty to the firm, but also paternalistic, looking after the workforce uh, as well.
4: When I used to go up to Brough, um, occasionally we used to go out to Home on Spalding Moor. Um, when was that part of the Blackburn Aircraft Company where your grandfather was around?
1: Um, I... I'm not absolutely sure, I'm afraid, but it does ring a bell. That's all I can say. I don't know whether anybody else can can answer that.
0: The um, home on Spalding Moor was, I think, bought if not leased from the the Ministry as a test aircraft for uh, a test airfield. Sorry, um, for the Buccaneer and uh, Bruff also worked on the Phantom, um, which certainly couldn't get in or out of Bruff. So, um,
4: It was on the buccaneer I used go but on the avionics side and that side of testing but it wasn't about it, it was much later than your grandfather I'm not sure I'm afraid yeah,
0: I, I, think it, I don't know whether anybody else can help I, I think Home on Spaulding Moor came into use uh, particularly when the buccaneer um, started flying
7: We went up to Spaulding Moor and had had looked round around the flight test uh, equipment set-up, which was very advanced in the de- for its day.
8: I'm Very interesting, in
7: the uh, twin-fused large seaplane
8: in the First World War, th- uh, do you know if they were successful when you were flown? Because my father was involved in the testing of them for the Royal Naval Air Service. And the problem was that the pilot had difficulty in controlling the engine And, of course, Dad, being the mechanic and the observer, had to get out and go and start the engine again. And this happened several times. And, of course, he said it was, was, you know, very slippery to do this. So um, I don't think they managed to take off. I don't know if you know anything about that particular aircraft you showed.
1: No, I don't think many of them were produced.
8: It was interesting that your grandfather was a civil engineer and also, of course, Barnes-Wallace was... Vance Wallace was working on airships and um, your grandfather was on big aircraft. So I think this might tie in with what my neighbour was saying just now. But coming back to the other point you made uh, was about the lack of uh, mechanical control and driving of cars in the First World War. So there weren't many people who had done that. And so I think this was a difficulty with the pilots. But do you know, I just wondered if you knew anything about that particular aircraft. Do you know, was it only one made or...?
1: No, but you might find it out by, there's a very good book on uh, the technological history of Blackburn aircraft by A.J. Jackson. Um, I would think it's probably, probably you'd find it in there.
4: You, you mentioned the Blackburn skewer. What about the Blackburn rock that uh, was the defined and had a power rated turret? Were, any, were many
1: produced? Yes, I, it was quite a successful aircraft. N- nothing like as many as the Skewer. Um, I mean, I couldn't put all the show all the aircraft today, but the Rock, you know, was a, uh, a successful Blackburn design. the car-operated turret
4: one ever went into action? The, the one with the, the four guns. <laughs> and how many guns did the Skewer have?
0: to say, I, off the top of my head, I can't quite answer those questions either.
1: But, um, as I say, you'll almost certainly find it in the, 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 that history of Blackburn Aircraft by Jackson, which has got all these technical details in it. It's a great book.
5: Returning again to when we were still a, a real country in the middle 50s, um, there was a scheme, I believe, for uh, a much improved Beverley with turboprops. And the reason for that, as I understand, was to carry both the English Electric and the de Havilland um, satellite launch vehicle come long-range ballistic missiles. Have you come across any um, information as to the size of the vehicles they were asked to carry?
1: Again, I think this this technical stuff that you'd probably find in... Uh, the technical history.
0: I, I think the, um, the role was eventually, or the aircraft that was eventually designed <coughs> for that role was, was the Belfast. Um, but of course, as soon as it was built, the role had been uh, become redundant because the, the, project, the missile projects, had been cancelled. Yeah. The,
5: the first uh, aircraft that I know of for certain which was schemed to carry them was a wide bodied variant of the V 1000, the Vickers V 1000 in 53 or 54. But there's very little, it almost seems to be sanitized out of history because you can find very, very little, very few details. So, but I know that, I believe that all the large transport aircraft of that period, middle 50s, you know, Bristol Shorts, etc., were all designed specifically to carry that as the you know, primary... It was Their primary reason for existence was to carry those vehicles, uh, rockets.
0: I'd like now to ask uh, Mikoki, please, to propose a vote of thanks. Right, Professor well, uh, like
3: to... Blankler, uh, you've... Um uh, you've given us a multifaceted evening. You've, uh, in terms of the products of the uh, Blackburn Aircraft Company, you've uh, taken us on a journey through a, um, a, a diverse range of aeroplanes, from the elegant, the 1912 monoplane and the the, uh, the uh, bluebird, um, through the gigantic, the cubaroo, the iris flying boat and the beverly, um, to the Slightly scarily purposeful, never better personified than the buccaneer, um, and without wishing to be in the least bit cheeky, uh, aviation history enthusiasts also regard Blackburn aircraft as the source of some of the ugliest aeroplanes ever produced, notably the uh, in the u k notably the uh, Blackburn Blackburn and the Blackburn Blackbird, which sadly we didn 't see pictures of today, but which in the 1920s, actually rivaled the undisputed masters of aeronautical ugliness, the French, um, which is no mean achievement. Now, the other things you've done tonight, you've taken us off the beaten track, looking at uh, things like the motorized sledges and the wonderful Roma hut, which I think was new to all of us. Um, but the, the main thing is the personal connection. Um, at the beginning of this evening, you said that Robert Blackburn uh, doesn't have the same high profile as some of the other pioneers in the UK, and that perhaps he didn't receive the recognition he deserved. Um, and I think you've absolutely tonight put him back on the map for us. Now, from any speaker, that would have been an achievement which would have sent us away satisfied. But for that to have been uh, given to us by somebody who is able to refer to his subject as granddad really makes it something very out of the ordinary. And not only that, but to be able to do so in the presence of several further members of the family really turns it into a very special evening indeed. So, quite apart from everybody in the room, I think, looking forward to seeing your book when it comes out, I am certain that everybody will want to join me in thanking you for a fascinating talk.